We're going to be in Romans. Romans chapter 6. And this feels so loud for a, uh, for a crowd tonight. I, w- I want to take advantage of our size a bit and uh, treat this more like a Bible study. So I might even give you opportunities to ask questions, maybe even to correct me. So you guys be taking some notes now. John's smiling over there. I'm a little nervous already. I, I, I'm also going to ask for a couple of you to volunteer to read our text in a moment. It won't be much, but if you'll be thinking about that, we're going to be reading in Romans 6. But I want to open by saying that the gospel has to be preached to Christians, not just to the lost. Okay? Last week, many of you were here last week, and we talked about really just four verses primarily in Romans. We looked at these key themes and concepts, words, titles of Jesus that we use often, but may understand little. Have any of you wondered recently if you really get the gospel? You don't have to raise your hand. Have you wondered, though, wow, maybe I'm not quite getting this? This is our series Jesus and the gospel according to Paul. And the more and more I'm studying this, and I've been studying the Bible for quite some time. I've been in the life of the church since, well, the womb, really. I, uh, I, I'm just barely getting the gospel, I think. The gospel has to be preached to Christians, not just to the lost. And in the opening of Paul's letter to, uh, to Roman Christians, he, he commends them for a faith that has global fame. He says that he thanks God through Jesus for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He's bragging on them for having such an internationally renowned faith. And yet he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So to you strong, mature believers, I can't wait to preach the gospel to you. And I think we have this. This view that the gospel is simplistic, it's elementary, it's that which is fit for the lost, not for us who are so advanced. And have been going to church for years. As I'm studying this, I'm realizing that actually the gospel is so vast, so capacious, that we're never going to be able to scale its heights, to plumb its depths. But we're going to try. Okay, we're going to go that route. We're not going to get there, but we are going to preach the gospel. We're going to think about it, sing about it, rejoice about it, and strain to understand it. Okay? So, let's pray together, and then I'll ask a couple of you to help us read our text tonight. Bow with me. Lord, we are now gathered together in the hearing of the great proclamation of your kingship, of your reign, and of your power, of your plan to make right everything we've made wrong. There's no message like this. We praise you for this message, that you've put it on our lips, that you've allowed our ears to to hear it. And we want to celebrate this gospel tonight, Lord. We're asking you to 
come and make it clearer. And we also ask that you would exert its power tonight into our hearts and into our minds. That you would do valiant and violent work against that which enslaves us men and women whom you've purchased as your children for yourself, sealed forever and ever. In the name of this Jesus whom the gospel proclaims, amen. Okay. Romans 6, who would like to read for us? Verses 1 through, let's see. Let's do 1 through 11. Who would do that for us? Great, Catherine, thank you for volunteering. Will you do that? <laughs> All right, be ready to volunteer. You might get volunteered. Ready? Uh, <laughs> verses 12 through 14. Anyone else Who wants to do that? All right, Joey, read loudly and clearly for us, okay? Romans 6, 1 through 11 and 12 through 14. Amen. Thank you guys for reading that. The first thing that we can say about this text is that the gospel makes a fundamental change in who you are. The gospel makes this fundamental re-identification of who you are. Paul's talking here of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, this great new king who brings his new kingdom. And his crucifixion, his resurrection, effects some deep and profound alteration in who you are when you embrace the gospel. When you proclaim your allegiance to like a sports team, well, nothing really changes 
who you are deep down, right? You might wear different colors, but nothing really changes deep down who you are. Tonight there's a big game, right? UAB and Memphis. And yeah, so uh, Alex is cheering for Memphis. I hope you don't mind me alerting them to that. But uh, so Alex may cheer for Memphis tonight, but if you were to switch allegiances tonight and cheer for UAB instead, no offense, uh, that's not going to fundamentally change who he is, okay? If the president you voted for became president recently, well, you might be rejoicing, but you're not fundamentally altered deep down in who you are. When a messenger came into the ancient cities of Rome and proclaimed a gospel, little g gospel, when they proclaimed that gospel like we talked about last week, that a, a new Caesar is in power. Well, all of that Caesar's supporters might rejoice in his new appointment as emperor, but nothing really fundamental changes about them. But when we embrace the gospel, which is the pronouncement of Christ as king, when we embrace the gospel, when we embrace that Jesus is Lord and surrender ourselves to him, give him our allegiance, then a fundamental, existential, ontological change takes place within us. And I don't even understand exactly what those words mean, but I know all that's happening within us when we embrace the gospel. There's this internal dying along with his dying, an internal rising along with his rising. We have been united with him in a death like his, and we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. As Catherine read from verse 5. We die with his dying, we rise in his rising. To understand what Paul's talking about here, we have to do some background work, okay? And we did this a lot last week. There was a lot of background. I hope that was helpful for you to hear the Greco-Roman background of these terms, the the Old Testament background. Tonight, more background, and you're just going to love it, okay? The background is on Jewish eschatology. Are your pens ready? (laughs) We even have PowerPoint for you tonight and some diagrams, okay? That will come up momentarily. I'll tell you when I'm ready. Okay. I'm going to build the anticipation for you. What does eschatology refer to? What does it mean? Yeah, the last things. Okay, Greek eschaton means the last thing, the last. The last things, the end times. And the heart behind Christian eschatology is that someone is coming. Someone's on the way. And when he gets here, when Jesus gets here, nothing will be the same ever again. There is an eschatological dynamic in my house. Because someone is coming. And she's due Monday. And I don't want to freak you guys out or anything, but... uh, Miranda could go into labor at any moment. I might not finish this Bible study. You doing okay? She had to walk in here funny from the parking lot because of the pains. It could happen. Does that affect how you feel right now sitting in this room? Yeah, yeah. Joel's on the same row, so he's a little bit stressed. Think about living with this. Someone is coming in our entire lives are shaped around the inevitability of her arrival and it is imminent it is soon when she gets here 
nothing will ever be the same again for us, for the Byers family. So there's this eschatological dynamic. Now, if she does start having contractions, no one's allowed to panic but me. <laughs> Nursing majors just gather around and somebody call 911 and, to come and get me. So... Uh, <laughs> This is what it means to live eschatologically, to live in expectation of someone coming. And Christians live in expectation of God's eventual arrival on the scene with the power and the will to change everything forevermore. I like that word. So to understand what Paul is arguing throughout this first part of, uh, of, of Romans, really this whole section of Romans, we need some Jewish eschatology. Jewish eschatology 101. Here's some basic points, okay? Basic points of what the first century Jews would have believed eschatologically. This is so exciting. All right, here we go. One, they would have believed that we live in a present evil age. Paul uses the phrase present evil age in Galatians 1 verse 4. The times were so hard and so harsh for the Jews in the first century. And for centuries before that they could call the times evil. These are hard times. But secondly, they believed that a, there was a new age to come. A new age on the horizon. We live in the present evil age, but there is an age that is to come. They believed that God was good, and they believed that God was powerful, but they knew their situation was bad. Therefore, something has to change. If God really is good, if He really is powerful, then there's a new age coming. And the coming of that age would be accompanied by a number of events, okay? These would have included the coming Messiah with the kingdom of God, with God's kingdom. The inclusion of Gentiles within that kingdom. The outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Any of this sound familiar? It would have been waiting for this. The coming of the Messiah with the kingdom. The inclusion of Gentiles in that kingdom. The outpouring of the Spirit. And very importantly, the remaking of heaven and earth. New heavens and a new earth. This is all throughout Isaiah and a few other places where God will bring a new heaven and a new earth. New creation. God made creation. It was good, but now he has to remake it. And this new creation in the minds of many, probably actually I could say most, would have involved the resurrection of the dead. Okay? The dead would rise. Even death. Whoa, goodness. How was that? Shocking you for giving dramatic effect. Even it's the THs that get me on this thing. Uh, <laughs> is that a, is it, you call that a diphthong? No, it's different. It's too bad. Okay, never mind. Moving along. <laughs> uh, <laughs> new creation would include this resurrection of the dead where death itself would be challenged and tossed into the ground. Okay? Um, could you put up that first slide? Ooh, that's very nice. Okay, this will help you understand everything. Um, <laughs> Busby helped me do these, okay? The, the Jews believe that the ending of the present age and the beginning of the new age will be clear, clearly demarcated by the day of the Lord, okay? All that the prophets, you see this on that day, in that day, there's a day coming. And on this day, this great day of the Lord, this climactic and fateful moment would come when the, the old age would 
die away and the new age would begin. Okay? But Jesus reworked this eschatological clock. Okay? And we can put up the next slide. Jesus reworked this scheme, all right, this diagram for us. He was resurrected, right? That was supposed to happen after the great day of the Lord, when all these other things happened with the Messiah's coming. Well, the Messiah came in Jesus, and he was resurrected from the dead. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, this was the first fruits of the great universal resurrection of all the faithful, okay? So Jesus, his resurrection is a part of this whole idea of Jewish eschatology. And it happens before anyone else has happened. So what we see is that the age, the present evil age is being encroached, all right, by the age that is to come. That future age is breaking into the present. New creation is underway. We see this because Jesus was resurrected. But the work's not finished. Someone came, but he's still coming. Jesus came to begin the work of new creation, but he's coming back to consummate it, to complete and to fulfill the work of consummation of, uh, of new creation. So that means that, that you and I live in that little rectangular section there, okay? That's where we live in God's chronology, in God's timing. It's this awkward, tense, overlapping of the ages. New creation has happened, but it's underway and will be completed down the road. All right? Paul tells us in Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So it's happening. But yet he also says in Romans 8 that all of creation and we ourselves are groaning for the completion of this work of recreation, of new creation. So we live in this awkward tension of the overlap of the ages. New creation has begun, but it's not over yet. And this affects how you live every single day of your life. Even if all this stuff is new to you and you haven't seen one of these fancy charts that I put on the screen. Even, even if this is all new. I assure you, this is your daily, hourly reality. You are living in the tense and awkward overlap of the ages in which someone has come to bring new creation, but someone's still coming to finish it. Our passage in Romans 6, you guys survived the background part. Our passage in Romans 6 describes how all of this eschatological theology gets worked out in the daily grind of being a Christian. Even if you have. Uh, even if you've never heard of this. Every single day. You're wrestling and you're groaning. With a new creation having begun. But not having been completed. I want to now read the text again. Reading it. Now that you have this background of Jewish eschatology. See if anything pops with more clarity for you now. And I'm going to start in verse 3. Paul's in this long, lengthy argument that we can't go into. that stretches back before a few chapters. But let me begin in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, new creation. It's underway. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's the exhortation. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. I said earlier that the gospel makes this fundamental change in who we are, in our identity. Think, think back to your baptism, okay? The moment when you walked the aisle. The moment when maybe at VBS, I don't know, you filled out a card, you raised your hand, you prayed with your parents, you were at a summer camp. Even if you're like me, you don't have uh, uh, some dramatic conversion story to tell. Think back to the fact that at some point, at some point, the gospel was embraced and you were altered. What Paul tells us happened is that we got drug into the death of Jesus and lifted up into the resurrection of Jesus. Something died and something was made new. We're co-crucified with Christ and we're co-resurrected with Christ. Okay, And the text shows us that we have to view our co-resurrection with Christ, our co-crucifixion with Christ, as both an event and as a process. Okay. Event and process. We see that our co-crucifixion, it's an event that took place and it's a process that's still underway, still happening. Our co-resurrection is an event that took place, but a process still underway. Event and process. So let's look at how Paul talks about co-resurrection. Okay. It says that though we walk in newness of life, verse 4. We do this now, but we shall certainly be united with him in verse five. So it's happened, but we shall is in the future tense. There's a past event that's being worked out as an ongoing process pointing to something else. And the same is true of our co-crucifixion with Christ. We have been crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It's a past event. But then Paul has to go on to say. Guys. Do not. Guys, let not. Stop doing. Present yourself this way. He has to give commands as if we've not entirely died yet to sin. It's a past event, but it's an ongoing process that has to be worked out. Paul's not an, ad- an idealist who assumes that, that once you guys give your life to Christ, you'll never want to gossip again. 
Then once you become a Christian, you'll never want to cheat on your spouse. Then once you become a Christian, that you're just going to automatically stop clicking on those Internet sites you shouldn't go to. Paul doesn't assume this about us. But he says that this co-crucifixion has happened and we have to live it out in the daily grind of our lives. It's an event and an ongoing process. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. He has to urge them to do this. It's a past event, but be ever reminded that it is true and live like it. Event and process. You made me nervous. I thought something was going on in your aisle, (laughs) on your row. Okay. Event and process. You got that? You guys are so riveted tonight. Now I got something really good for you. Indicative and imperative. Okay? (laughs) That'll make sense in a moment. We have to think of this passage in terms of event and process. And in terms of the indicative and the imperative. Anybody ever heard that before? From anybody besides me? You heard that? You've heard of it? Good. Grammar class? Very nice. But you don't feel like you're in grammar class tonight, right? <laughs> don't answer that. <laughs> I've already said diphthong. Now I'm saying indicative and imperative. <laughs> okay. Uh, Most sermons actually follow this pattern of indicative and then imperative. They give deep, hopefully, sermons are giving deep theological insights. That's the indicative. And then they give an imperative. Now, here's what you do with the insights. And Paul's letters have the structure. Lengthy arguments and presentations about who God is, who Christ is, who the Spirit of God is, and who we are in them and in their shared life. And then Paul will have very practical exhortations. Now live as though this is who you are and this is who God is. The indicative and then the imperative. Okay? The house is on fire. That's indicative. Therefore, the imperative, get out. Run. Indicative and imperative. Here's who you are in Christ. That's the indicative. So now live that way. That's the imperative. And the text tonight is structured very well for a sermon that has... An indicative and an imperative. The theological meat and then the practical application. Because he gives all this deep, rich theological stuff about co-crucifixion and co-resurrection. And then he says, now live this way. And begins in verse 11. His imperative, his exhortation, his application, his instructions begin in verse 11. Here's what Paul first instructs us. In light of our co-crucifixion with Christ and our co-resurrection with Christ, here's what you do. Verse 11, we're told to consider. To consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. To consider yourself. To reckon yourself to be, to account yourself to be just what Paul has told them. That they are. You are co-crucified and co-resurrected with Jesus. Consider yourselves to be like that. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Alive to God. So let me ask you guys tonight. 
Who do you consider yourself to be right now? Who do you reckon yourself to be? How do you view yourself right now, tonight? Read with me once more, verses 9 and 10. The indicative part, okay? We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There's this militaristic language that's being used here. You can really see it in in the Greek text. There's political language, military language. It's as if mighty kings have stationed themselves on the field of battle, stared each other down, with only one emerging as the great, almighty, one and only, once for all, master over the vilest of foes. Death's mastery, dominion, lordship. It's been usurped for forever. Death no longer has dominion over him, over Jesus. And in the resurrection, in that resurrection power, he lives and he breathes in fresh supernatural vigor before God. So you also must consider yourselves. Paul writes. The great Lord Jesus the Christ has entered into battle with that power that has wielded dominion for so long. And he has triumphed over it. He is no longer dead. He'll never die again. Death can't touch him anymore. Death has come loose at its hinges and he now lives forever and ever. So you also must consider yourselves. Who do you consider yourself to be tonight? Does it come anywhere close to what Paul tells you to consider yourself to be? When you think about how you're regarding yourself right now, is it as someone who's breathing and tasting and drinking resurrection power? Or is it as someone who's just scraping by? Trying to put on the prettiest face as possible in front of your Christian friends. Do you consider yourself to be a failure? A failure for whom the gospel seems to have just not worked. The first exhortation from Paul here is to think rightly about ourselves. Consider yourself to be who the gospel says you now are. Consider yourself to be who the gospel says you now are. As new creations, co-crucified but co-resurrected and soon to be co-reigning with Christ. There's a series of other exhortations. They begin in uh, in verse 12. 
we read, let not, do not. Don't you wish there was some magic pill you took? Or if you could just read your Bible so many hours a day, or just pray so many hours, and then like magic, the sin struggles you have would just disappear. You could just chant your incantation that you get out of you know, Habakkuk or some obscure place in the Bible you're not familiar with. You just chant the incantation and they're gone. You pray the prayer of Jabez, all over, good thing. We can go on with our great resurrected happy life. Paul just says, stop sinning. Don't do it. Quit. I don't go through a series of self-help formulas when my son is doing something he shouldn't be doing. I say, quit. Don't you wish it would be a lot easier? But if you're considering yourselves rightly, there'll be more confidence to say, all right, I won't. I'm done. And I'll just walk away. Sin will have no dominion over you. Now, think about how this works out every day. It's that eschatological tension, right? This awkward overlap of the ages. We feel as though we're new creations at times, right? We taste at times this resurrected life. And then the next thing you know, you're looking at that thing you shouldn't be looking at again. The next thing you know, you're thinking those thoughts that you shouldn't be thinking. You're doing that thing with that person you know you shouldn't be doing. You're doing that thing to yourself you know you should have stopped doing. Event and process. We're co-crucified, we're co-resurrected. But we have to be yielding to this process every day. Of becoming who the gospel says we are. So how do we fight sin with all this? The only way to resurrection is through crucifixion. The only way to, to resurrected life is through having your life crucified. This is the pattern here that is provided in the text with how we fight and how we deal with sin. We're promised resurrected life. Newness of life is the way it's referred to in verse 4. We're assured this. There's no resurrection in the New Testament without crucifixion. So how do you experience and taste the glory and beauty of resurrection? You taste the pain and the filth and the sacrificial angst and hurt of a cross. That's how. If you want to fight sin in your life, it takes a cross. If you want to come out of sin on the other side through an empty tomb, you've got to go to a cross. And the way we enter into this co-crucifixion with Christ in our daily lives is that we do what Jesus had to do. We surrender. We give it over. Not my will, but yours be done. We surrender our will. We say no to ourselves. At the end of the day, I'm not so sure it's our power as much as it is our desire that prevents us from sin. I've met with uh, 
A lot of people, a lot, lot of students for, for many years with different sin struggles. I remember recently meeting with a young man and had a, a terrible problem with, uh, with internet pornography. And I said, who would you most not want to find out about your addiction? It's either his mom or his grandmother. I said, okay, g- give me their phone numbers right now. Give me their phone numbers. Next time it happens, I'll call your grandma. Okay? Let's just agree to that. It's a form of accountability. If you think grandma is going to walk in the door while you're clicking on the internet, you probably won't click on it. This you was an intense desire, but there is resurrection power awaiting if you would yield to a cross. If you would say, okay, here's her phone number, and you can call her right now. There are many of us, and many of the people that you see every day, and they have addictions that are just pillaging them. They have addictions, and many of you may in this room Sin addictions that are so fierce and violent and oppressive. And you feel hopeless and you don't even know why you're sitting in the room right now listening to a sermon on sin. Because you feel like you've tried and you've tried and you've tried. The gospel says there is at least, even if there's one gasp left in you, there is resurrected life waiting, but it's on the other side of a cross. You must surrender to a cross. You have to let it die. Even if the only thing you have resurrected power to do is just to submit to the friends around you who say, let us stay with you. Give us your internet cord. Let's take you to where you need to go right now. Even if that's all you can do, it's embracing a cross. And on the other side of it is the release and beauty of an empty tomb. I'm going to close with a story I just... Chuck and I were talking about this right beforehand. He told me a C.S. Lewis story, and I thought of another one. It's a story about a man who had a severe sin addiction. I think it shows really well this idea of no resurrection without crucifixion. It's from a book called The Great Divorce. Anybody read that? Okay. So good. And and it's years ago that I read it. The, The premise is that there's a bus full of people, they've died on earth. And they're in this bus on the way to the, uh, really the frontier lines of heaven. They're right on the edge of heaven. And they want to get into heaven, of course. That's where they all want to go. But they need an escort. They need someone to come and escort them in. That's the way it works in the story that Lewis tells. And an angel comes to serve as a man's escort. The man has a lizard-type thing on his shoulder. And it's this demonic sin presence in his life. The angel draws a sword. Can I kill it? He says to the man. No, no, actually, I'm, I'm fine. I'm quite fine. It's no problem. No, this is fine. I really, I have it under control. May I kill it, please? No, actually, I'd, I'd rather you not. I'm really just fine. I would like to kill it now. May I please kill it? Can I please kill it? No, no, really, I'm just fine. Actually, actually, maybe, maybe I, maybe I, it has been such a, oh my gosh, I've just been living in a nightmare for so long, the lizard thing would whisper in his ear, actually, no, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. May I please kill it? May I kill it now, the angel says. And there's a struggle going back and forth. And it sounds just like so many of the one-on-one moments I've had with students in my office. This 
horrific sin struggle and the denial that it's even right there on their shoulder and it's so obvious maybe to me or to their friends around them may i please kill it can i take it away from you no actually i'm fine the person refuses to submit refuses to yield refuses to give it up refuses a cross when you refuse a cross you're denied resurrection but in this one moment the man finally says okay take it And the angel takes it instantly and slices the thing and open. It falls to the ground. And from out of the ground from which its carcass fell, rises up this great white stallion. And upon this stallion, the man is placed and he is carried then right into heaven. The release of his addiction became the means by which he was transported into his resurrected life. And that kind of beautiful picture awaits you only after you have embraced the cross. Let's pray together. I want to challenge you. To be very intentional about your time of prayer. To live eschatologically right now. To live in the, in the reality that someone is coming. Someone is coming who desires to find you faithful. Rand and I have been trying to make preparations in our house, getting the house in order for the arrival of this precious baby. How in order is your house? Where's the furniture placed? What's underneath the rugs? What's in the closets? Someone is coming. Someone is coming. I'm going to challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to uplift the veils, to peel away the scales, to show you what might be on your shoulder whispering in your ear. And during our time of prayer, singing about the gospel. Make it a time when you present your members, present yourself to God as one who is dead to that sin and alive to him. Let your prayer and let your worship now be a movement towards resurrected life via crucifixion, the laying down of your intense desires for whatever that may be. But God, I ask for your great strength to be displayed and demonstrated in my heart and in the hearts of those gathered here at your feet. 
You are the one over whom sin and death has no mastery. And we are your belongings, your possessions. You've made it possible that the same can be true of us. That sin would have no dominion over us. I pray, Lord God, that where the cross is being resisted in the room tonight, I pray you bring repentance and freedom and rescue and salvation. In the name of the one who is, who was, and who is to come.